0: Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Saturday, April 1st, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 56. This episode is brought to you by hashtag fam taught Me, my fertility awareness education initiative. You can find all of my fertility awareness information on my website, www.learnbodyliteracy.com, and you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at LearnBodyLit to learn more. I don't remember the exact moment I started using the term body literacy, but it was around 2017. I had been charting for a few years and had just opened my menstrual practice. And I was working with other people interpreting their menstrual charts. So I had been presented with some backlash regarding fertility awareness method, essentially that it's just not feasible or that the method couldn't work for all types of people. And so, you know, perhaps that was a fair assessment Since then, I can think of plenty of reasons why it may not be someone's preferred method. However, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be taught about it or how it works, because teaching it is really just teaching someone the information they should have been provided about how their body works from the very beginning, instead of a mixture of shame and frightening myths like the body can become pregnant at any time from any sexual act. So this discussion about who FAM can't work for is what brought me to extending fertility awareness beyond contraception and into the idea of body literacy as a comprehensive sex education tool. So by thinking of the menstrual cycle outside of solely its reproductive purpose, we could open up the perspective that it's more like a vital sign akin to our heart rate or respiration. And this is when I decided that in my own work, I had to make a concerted effort to shift the narrative about fertility awareness away from its namesake of fertility, and rather to make the goal to fully educate oneself about their body. And I believed back then as I do now, that from this framework, women and all menstruators can make better educated decisions about their choice of contraceptive and also gain insight into their health or monitor their pregnancies. So this is obviously more difficult to achieve in practice as we see just how ingrained menstrual myths are in a myriad of societies, so it's intended to provide education and more clarity and grounding young menstruators in their bodies and putting more choices in their hands. Lisa Lager, who has been teaching fertility awareness for over 20 years, said something pretty interesting about this. In her conversations with public health nurses throughout her career, she explained that they usually quibble about the effectiveness of fertility awareness as a birth control method and seem reluctant to mention the existence of cervical mucus for fear that a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. They worry that some students, if taught fertility awareness, might screw it up, thinking they were safe when they were not but the CDC report tells us that garbled understanding about how ovulation works is doing more harm than good. I hasten to reassure my public health colleagues that I am not proposing we teach teenagers natural birth control. What I'm proposing is the awareness part, that we correct this critical gap in teenagers' knowledge by explaining that mucus is an obvious sign of fertility. So this speaks to the fact that our society conceals and withholds information about the menstrual body, like reading our menstrual blood or understanding our cervical secretions on purpose. It keeps us body illiterate on purpose. So this is blatant state mandated misogyny in sex education as menstruation is a basic biology for half of the human population. So when the biomedical model and education system purposefully obscures us from our own body literacy, we do have cause for concern as informed consent is an impossibility without it. If our culture shifted to where body literacy was more to be understood and respected, it would create foundational change. Another contentious aspect of the moment concerning the defining of body literacy is that we're existing in a time where there are a lot of new bio tracking technology surfacing. It started with period tracker apps, and it's now evolved into wrist and armbands and rings. Bluetooth thermometers, and other hormone testing gadgets. These technologies seem like they could help bridge this gap, but not on their own, because body literacy requires an awareness of how you are affected by your environment. We are not algorithms or clocks. So there is a chance now to not get swept up in the moment of reliance on predictive algorithmic technology as a replacement for the old medical model of top-down, authoritative, doctor-knows-best medicine. So this will take a concerted and targeted effort. Body literacy is an autonomous practice of knowing one's own patterns and signs and making determinations based off of that knowledge. The prioritization of technology over education is a grave mistake ushered in by venture capitalists who have no regard for the sacred impact of this work. And ultimately, it reflects badly on the accuracy of the methods that we are developing. Algorithmic apps declaring themselves a part of this movement while simultaneously obscuring the person's data from themselves and even using junk science terms that confuse users and result in unintended pregnancies is part of the reason why we need to further clarify our position. Body literacy now rests at the core of my philosophy on reproductive health. This is because it allows for the user to have better control over their reproductive choices as well as providing insight into their overall health. It is inclusive, secular, and free to all who wish to learn it. A few years ago, I reimagined the definition for fertility awareness-based methods in order to push back on the conventional one. My version is that fertility awareness methods are the act of charting one's own fertility signs with specific biomarkers. These markers can be used to identify fertility and for a variety of health issues. The goal of Fertility Awareness Methods is body literacy. And so before I get started with this episode, I just wanted to say how proud I am of everyone who has started tracking their cycles and who's taken the time to learn fertility awareness and body literacy. I feel honored to have at this point intervened in the lives of many people who are struggling or need a change. And in the process, I've met some amazing people, women, men, non-binary, and trans alike who all benefit from this work. So I love you and I care for your well-being and I hope this sets you on a path of feeling good about yourself mentally and physically and emotionally. You know, y'all have changed my life uh, and it's imperative that we move through these next years with self-mastery and with community and fortitude because we really are dealing with a lot right now and we are going to get through it. So with that, we're going to get into today's episode. Body literacy is a health concept that uses the menstrual cycle as a self-knowledge tool a vital sign, and a way to measure hormonal health autonomously. Body literacy means to learn, to read, and understand the language of the body. It is a practice mainly involving the observation, charting, and interpretation of menstrual cycles based on fertility awareness principles. Body literacy helps someone understand the changes of their body throughout their menstrual life cycle from menarche to menopause. Body literacy can be used to help someone understand menstruation, reproductive health, breast health, metabolic health, sexuality, birth control, pregnancy monitoring, abortion and post-abortion care, self-esteem, mental health, and a variety of other health tracking connections, and more. Body literacy is part of the broader movement towards health literacy, which is the knowledge and competencies of persons to meet the complex demands of health in modern society. Body literacy is a tool to enhance reproductive freedom and informed choice, which falls under the frameworks of reproductive justice and birth justice. Body literacy uses information from the menstrual cycle as a key component to making fully participatory, informed decisions about one's health, and recognizes the social conditions that contribute to serious disparities and limit one's right to freely choose in healthcare. Body literacy's reproductive politics are not solely about choice but about justice. Body literacy is a skill with practical knowledge that deepens self-empowerment as it helps communicate signals from the body and translates them into a legible framework where patterns and changes can be analyzed. These patterns and changes may be useful from one cycle to the next, but the ultimate goal is for body literacy to be a useful framework from menarche to menopause and beyond, and not just individually, but communally as well. The organization Tathapi, an Indian women's health resource organization, began using and developing the concept of body literacy as a quote medium to scientifically explain the processes of the body, its parts, and its functions to men, women, and children of different age groups, as early as the year 2000. In North America, the term was first used by Laura Werschler at the Society for Menstrual Cycle Research conference in June 2005 in Boulder, Colorado. The concept of body literacy was then defined by menstrual health activists Laura Werschler, Geraldine Mattis, and Megan Lalonde in Femme Fertile magazine later that same year. Laura Werschler, now an author at Society for Menstrual Cycle Research, wrote that body literacy occurred to her after reading a novel about illiteracy. She made the connection that the education of women and girls about their bodies is essential to understanding their health and wellness. This empowers them to make more informed choices and become an active participant in their own health decisions. Since the early 2000s, many women's health and menstrual health activists have begun using the term to describe concepts related to menstrual health awareness. Other collections of Laura's early writings that mention body literacy include personal stories, such as Stuck in a Body Literacy Gap, Winter 2006, and Professional Experiences in Body Literacy at Work in the Community. Laura went on to give a presentation at the 2007 SMCR conference that was titled, Menstrual Cycle Charting, A Path to Body Literacy. Geraldine Mattis titled an update to her book, Justice Method, Fertility Awareness and Body Literacy, A User's Guide, which was first published in 1989. Chris Bobel, Associate Professor of Women's Studies and editor of the Palgrave Handbook of Critical Menstruation Studies, mentioned body literacy in her book, New Blood, Third Wave Feminism and the Politics of Menstruation, 2010. Body literacy is a term now used by menstrual health educators, Researchers and scholars such as Geraldine Mattis, Laura Wierschler, Chris Bobel, Geraldine Pryor, Sarah Hill, Holly Grigsball, Aviva Ram, Elisa Viti, Lara Bryden, Lisa Hendrickson-Jack, and many others. The PUKAR Youth Fellowship Program in India has also used body literacy in its work with teenage girls, while the Institute for Reproductive Health at Georgetown University has a youth initiative focusing on fertility awareness and body literacy. Now I want to talk about the values that underlie body literacy. Body literacy seeks to create a world where the human right to menstruate freely is respected, not just on an individual level, but at a societal level. This is a world where people receive culturally sensitive, compassionate, inclusive, trauma-informed, and accessible education and care for their menstrual body. It is a world where the cycling body is respected for its unique needs and even one where those needs are seen as a force of power. The foundation of values that body literacy proposes are reproductive justice, birth justice, and human rights in order to defeat reproductive oppression. This means that we must continue to teach the history of racist gynecology and medical apartheid, and that we must prioritize serving the needs of oppressed people who have been harmed and excluded by the medical industrial complex and the larger forces of domination. Additionally, body literacy must be open to new knowledge, as the scientific information we have been given is often either inadequate or biased. Both new research and knowledge, and the preservation of old traditional knowledge, helps shape our work and pushes it forward. We must not be too rigid and allow for space for change, multiplicity, and dissent. How body literacy reframes our perspective We'll start with the menstrual life cycle. Body literacy teaches the concept of the menstrual life cycle. This is a series of hormonal changes that shift during different stages in life in the context of your ovarian hormones. Explaining how hormones go through phases and change through the lifespan is essential to understanding body literacy. The menstrual life cycle begins with puberty and menarche, the first menstruation of one's life, and adrenarch, the awakening of the adrenal glands, which also produce sex hormones and help the body to further develop. The four stages of the menstrual life cycle are generally referred to as puberty, menstrual or reproductive years, perimenopause, and menopause. The menstrual life cycle helps us reframe menstruation beyond the 28-day cycle and instead looks at the changing cycle throughout the life stages. The second thing I wanna talk about is the interconnected reproductive system. The menstrual cycle also has to be reframed at the site of the body. The cycle has been conventionally relegated to the medical specialty of gynecology, which is an effect of patriarchal medicine that does not see our bodies as whole, but only as a combination of different parts. But when menstrual cycles are happening regularly, they are hormone-generating cycles, making estrogen and progesterone in the right amounts for a whole-body regulatory needs. Fertility itself is not just the reproductive system, but a typical part of being in your adult body and the menstrual cycle represents an infradian rhythm or a rhythm lasting more than one circadian rhythm day. This core rhythm involves an orchestra of different body systems, such as the endocrine system, the adrenals, the thyroid, and more. The menstrual cycle hormones themselves are intended to be balanced between follicular estrogen and luteal progesterone, which provides bone balance, cardiovascular health, brain health, and more. If you study the cycle more closely, you'll see that every body system is interconnected to the menstrual cycle and ovarian hormones in one way or another. This is by our body's beautiful design. The idea that the interior reproductive system is simply some extra organs or that the menstrual cycle is a useless, painful, and evolutionary disadvantageous experience and should therefore be optional and discarded until you want to use your reproductive capacity is part of the patriarchal oppression that's baked into gynecology and medicine at large. It's also a part of the construction of the menstrual normate. In other words, who is considered a moral, good, and acceptable menstruator? Being able to make connections between the menstrual cycle and the rest of the body is an essential way in which body literacy reframes our relationship to menstruation. And as a result of these two aspects, the life cycle and the interconnectedness of the reproductive system menstrual health educators, activists, and researchers began referring to the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. In 2015, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists made an official statement in agreement stating that the menstrual cycle is now considered an additional vital sign because it is a systemic indicator of overall general health and body systems as well as being an indicator of fertility. So what does it mean to have body literacy? When does a person become body literate? Body literacy is about knowing what is normal and healthy for you as an individual. There will always be a set of changing, quote, normal parameters, some of which are derived from medical statistics. So in other words, the most statistically common will be deemed normal. But many of which have been derived from other things, like bias or medical misogyny. And so this is why it's essential that we not only interrogate what is normal, but what is normal for you. So when you have achieved body literacy, you understand the menstrual life cycle and the fact that when you're in your menstrual years, you're living on an infradian rhythm. That hormonal rhythm drives the physiological changes that we observe on the outside, such as our three fertility signs, secondary fertility signs, and other bodily signals like sleep quality, digestion, metabolism, and other aspects of your health. So body literacy means that when you notice signs that are outside the normal parameters for you, you're able to be proactive about addressing them well before they become a full-blown disease. Although conventional contraceptives like birth control pills, IEDs, implants, and injections are important tools in the toolbox of fertility control, they do rely on invasive changes to the body and to the hormonal pattern. So the conventional narrative is that self-knowledge of the menstrual cycle is a vital sign. It's simply not needed, and that it's really only necessary if and when you want to become pregnant. And so for many people, that sounds reasonable. However, they aren't given the chance to necessarily learn what body literacy is or why they could want to learn about it. And although fertility awareness-based methods are not for everyone, they are a reliable methodology to understand your fertility and your hormonal patterns over time deepening your relationship to your body. And the methodology is also useful because not every person is going to use birth control every month of their menstrual life. You know, some people are going to come off of it for health reasons or because they want to be pregnant or because the pharmacy ran out or because they lost their pill pack. And so even in these cases, a basic understanding of body literacy can help the person to feel empowered to understand how the body operates having a menstrual cycle. And so teens who are put on menstrual suppression forms of birth control, for example, they wouldn't be in an empowered position to understand what's happening to their body should birth control be unavailable for whatever reason. And so this represents a gap in body literacy that has to be addressed. Now I'd like to talk about the state of the body literacy movement. We need to talk a little bit about how we got to this point of living in the modern world while still being, by and large, societally body illiterate. So we have a healthcare system that has a clearly documented history of racism, of misogyny, ableism, homophobia, and dismissal of proper research because of the medical biases that are born out of these forms of bigotry. And so if the medical system believes the myth that female bodies are inferior, that they're hysterical and unpredictable, that they're wild and monstrous, then all of those ideas become reinforced through systemic healthcare creeping into every corner of research and knowledge and practice, and even into individual practitioners. So the medical field has been historically dominated by men, of course, who don't even have the lived experience of a menstrual cycle, and has systemically excluded wise women and other forms of healers, creating narrow and reductionist specialty disciplines within medicine that do not serve the menstrual body as one whole humanized person. So most of the scientific research done on the body was done on men and it purposefully excluded women specifically because of their menstrual cycles that they, they created too many hormonal variables which were costly and inconvenient and time consuming. And body illiteracy has been a systemic project, one where if we never learn about it, we have a much harder time challenging these existing oppressive forces. And so although we've made huge strides of progress in destigmatizing menstruation, The menstrual awareness movement was co-opted by some of the very same companies that created the stigma, such as menstrual product manufacturers and pharmaceutical companies. And so this product-heavy focused approach has been critiqued by more radical health educators who believe that the foundation of informed consent, bodily autonomy, and accurate education must be prioritized, and that it's dangerous to allow for education to be dispensed by product manufacturers that reinforce taboos. And body literacy also exposes the systemic knowledge gap in a menstrually unaware society. So, feminist research methodologies help us to create social change and to promote value systems that reflect our ways of knowing. They're also heavily participatory and they require other forms of knowledge gathering, seeing we've been excluded from some of the dominant forms. And when we, in addition to existing research and more macro concepts around the body, begin to chart our menstrual cycles and gather our data together, we begin sharing with one another and helping each other with various bodily needs. Menstruation really affects every aspect of life. It affects social justice, gender equality, and political participation. And Chris Bobel says this perfectly when she says, when we talk about menstruation, we're talking about more than blood. Menstrual health is a gateway issue. It taps into a portal to topics such as sexual harassment, assault, dating violence, and sexual decision-making. I'm now going to lay out 10 core tenets of body literacy. So what are the main principles to body literacy education? Number one, body literacy requires the use of the senses and observational skills, like naming, seeing, touching, and feeling, and a foundational understanding of anatomy in order to accurately identify our bodies and understand when they're functioning normally. Body literacy must begin with anatomy and physiology. For example, sometimes children are not taught the names of their body parts, which can lead to confusion in communicating an issue with those parts. A later effect of this in culture is that many adults today still call their vulva a vagina, and this isn't the fault of individual adults, of course, as the medical field and society itself has mislabeled these body parts. But a push to incorporate body literacy will also affect the medical system and how we name or rename ourselves. So the person must use their senses that are available to them to observe their body and chart this down in an organized way before analyzing its meaning. So it's a different kind of paying attention that requires the building of habits and skills. Number two, fertility is an effect of whole body health. In other words, A healthy body tends to be a fertile body. I say this with the knowledge and sensitivity that some people's bodies will be healthy for them without being fertile and that is okay. Fertility does not equal morally good and healthy does not equal morally good, but fertility is associated with markers of health. So with the sensitivity that this doesn't apply to every person, we can understand that from what we've spoken about thus far, that the reproductive body is interconnected with the rest of the body systems. So fertility actually goes far beyond the goal of reproduction and has the function of making essential hormones during our adult years that increase our health and longevity, especially during our menopausal years. So one of the many functions of body literacy is to remove shame and fear that is based in not knowing. For example, not knowing that cervical fluid comes from the cervix, is a marker of fertility, and is normal and healthy can lead someone to confusion, fear, and shame. Number three, society must learn to respect the infradian rhythm. An infradian rhythm is a hormonal rhythm that lasts more than one day, like a circadian rhythm. The menstrual cycle is an infradian rhythm and making informed choices based on our point in the rhythm helps us live a better quality of life. The menstrual cycle changes your brain chemistry from one phase to the next. And this means it's affecting who you are, how you deal with problems, and that your specific needs are changing. So it's constantly in flux due to the endocrine system's secretion of hormones, moving from the menstrual phase to the follicular, ovulatory, and luteal phases. The hormones involved in menstruation are follicle-stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone. And the ratios of these hormones change, affecting you, your energy levels, and your nourishment needs. In a patriarchal society, there is no acknowledgement of the infradian rhythm. Systemically, socially, and culturally, we are encouraged to conceal menstruation and force our bodies to pass as non-menstruating in order to exist peacefully in this society. No knowledge, awareness, or accommodation for the infradian rhythm is a form of menstrual oppression. Reproductive work occurs whether or not you ever decide to have children because the menstrual cycle is work. It is a physiological process that takes extra time and calories to accomplish, and it is to be respected. Number four, ovulation is the main hormonal event of the menstrual cycle, not menstruation. Instead of being focused on the menstrual part of the menstrual cycle, we can reframe cycles as ovulatory cycles and rightfully position ovulation as the core change that occurs in most of them. Menstruation is an effect of ovulation, when no egg is fertilized. It is a normal, healthy bodily event. Other types of bleeding that occur that are not the result of ovulatory cycles can be a sign of a health problem. So it's important that people learn that the ovulatory cycle is different from menstrual bleeds and other types of bleeding. This is a significant shift from the focus on menstrual bleeds only and opens people up to learning about the rest of the phases of the ovulatory cycle And it creates counterculture to the dominant paradigm of periods being the focus, which is also a problematic euphemism for menstruation itself. Understanding that ovulation is the main event of the cycle also helps pregnant people better understand their true due date, and it also helps people using hormonal contraception to understand more about how it works by preventing ovulation, among other things. Number five. Cervical secretions are a most reliable, diagnostic, or in-the-moment fertility sign. Not simply ambiguous vaginal discharge, cervical secretions tell us about the hormone estrogen, and they also tell us about when fertility is possible. By naming cervical secretions, otherwise called cervical fluid or cervical mucus, we can start to help people conceptualize what the fluid is, where it comes from, and for what purpose it serves. Cervical mucus is produced by cells that line the cervix, which is the portal connecting the uterus to the vagina. The cervix is closed until estrogen rises and instructs the cervix to create fluid that can select, nourish sperm, and store them for a few days, and then transports them to the egg at the moment the egg is available. The cervix closes again after ovulation and does not reopen until menstruation to let menstrual blood flow. The ability for it to open and close is not simply about the cervix dilating, but is actually about the presence of different kinds of cervical secretions that can either create a mucus plug to keep the cervix closed, or cervical secretions that dissolve the mucus plug and are of wet quality, facilitating sperm transport and changing the pH of the vaginal canal to support conception. Cervical position follows estrogen, just like the production of cervical mucus, and is considered one of the three fertility signs based on the height and texture of the cervix inside the vaginal canal. Cervical fluid is the key indicator of fertility, and thus should not be discussed in ambiguous terms such as vaginal discharge, where any kind that doesn't smell bad is considered normal, but with no further context. This only seeks to obscure our body's functions from us. Number six. The three fertility signs are important biomarkers that can be used to reliably understand the bounds of the fertile window and should be taught in standard sex education. As just discussed, cervical fluid is one main diagnostic fertility sign. The other two fertility signs are waking body temperature and cervical position. An understanding of these three signs and learning the skill of charting them on a graph is a reliable way of determining the beginning and the end of the fertile window for each unique menstrual cycle. This knowledge deepens body literacy empowerment and allows for autonomous decision making in both healthcare and sexuality. High progesterone levels after ovulation raise the body's temperature, which can be observed on a graph and shows us that ovulation has already occurred and that the window of fertility for that menstrual cycle has passed. The temperature rises after ovulation and sustains for the rest of that cycle, resulting in a biphasic temperature pattern that can be easily spotted from one cycle to the next. The three fertility signs together are important because they help you identify the patterns of your two most important ovarian hormones, estrogen and progesterone. And the charts do this more efficiently than a blood test, because when we look at it through a chart, we're looking at the changing levels of these hormones over time instead of a blood test that's taken on a single day. Estrogen and progesterone are essential for good health and longevity, as well as their role in reproduction. The three fertility signs are also important because they help the person with the menstrual cycle to identify when they become fertile and when their fertility window has passed. Number seven, the fertile window is a small part of the whole menstrual cycle. In other words, a fertile person with a menstrual cycle cannot get pregnant every day of their menstrual cycle. Fertility is only possible in the five or so days leading up to ovulation and ovulation itself. This is because of the role that cervical mucus plays in the follicular phase in capturing, selecting, nourishing, holding, and transporting the sperm in facilitation of the reproductive potential of ovulation. Sperm are unable to survive in the acidic vaginal canal during infertile times, when the cervix is closed and no cervical fluid is present. Body literacy's capabilities for contraception and fertility control are layered. At the first layer, the knowledge combined with conscious behavior changes can prevent unintended implantations. It can also provide some of the earliest detection of pregnancy, even before a pregnancy test, and allows for the person to make informed choices to inhibit implantation if needed. And thirdly, body literacy allows us to know when a bleed is coming. Body literacy is work that's open to all people who wish to know more about their fertile window and how they can use that knowledge to advance their self-mastery. Number eight, body literacy is based on a holistic approach to the body, not a narrow specialty approach. It requires a process of unlearning bias, stigma, and taboo, and a process of learning the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. The unlearning process is a deep exploration because we have been taught a lot of things that reinforce the dominant paradigms of menstrual acceptability and we reproduce them in our own lives as well as pass them down to younger generations. And This means that even if we want to become a body literate society, we have to interrogate our own participation in the process. And This can begin with investigating how other body systems like the cardiovascular, endocrine and skeletal systems are interacting with the menstrual cycle. And that is incredibly helpful for grounding the person in their whole body. Number nine is that the menstrual cycle length is variable from one cycle to the next, as is the fertile window and ovulation day itself. So there are many pervasive and imprecise menstrual myths that exist, such as the menstrual cycle should always be 28 days, or that ovulation always happens on day 14. And so this myth is further reinforced by visual medical diagrams, which represent the menstrual cycle as having 28 days with a 14-day ovulation. And so menstrual cycles also change significantly in each phase of the menstrual life cycle. So in both puberty and perimenopause, cycles are going to be less rhythmic than they are for a typical person during their menstrual years. And this is not a sign of a condition. It actually just represents a transition within the life cycle. And ovulation is a hormonal and physical event that can be affected by your environment or your health or life circumstances. And so menstrual cycles are dynamic and responsive. They do not always represent a long-term issue, but they can be a marker of specific times in life. So the over-reliance of medicine on only cycle length means that typical diagnostics can potentially miss several underlying factors in a developing condition, uh, especially if the cycle length just remains stable. So for example, someone may have regular intervals of bleeding that look like menstruations. And uh, with the regular, you know, diagnostics, you are going to miss that ovulation is not happening. But with understanding body literacy, we can see that ovulation is disturbed and we can try and figure out You know why that's happening and how that ties into the person's whole body health and number 10 body literacy is inclusive secular evidence-based sex education it promotes bodily autonomy informed healthcare choice and is built on the foundations of birth justice and reproductive justice it includes many different groups of people including educators artists researchers scientists and tool creators who are advancing the field and this includes new research from the Center for Menstrual Cycle and Ovulation Research, which is based at the University of British Columbia and led by Jerry Lynn Pryor, and the Society for Menstrual Cycle Research, which was founded in 1977. And so the field has grown in interest due to a number of books that have been written about the subject, such as Taking Charge of Your Fertility by Tony Weschler in 1995, followed up by modern books like The Fifth Vital Sign by Lisa Hendrickson Jack. And in the years since, several fertility awareness schools have emerged, teaching and certifying hundreds of educators so they can go on to teach this method to more people with a solid evidence basis. And these existing resources have limitations, of course, um, such as many of them being not queer inclusive. Uh, They may not be alternative relationship structure inclusive or sex worker inclusive and other various sociocultural issues. One goal of body literacy is to expand the limited worldview of existing fertility awareness methodology and to allow for everyone to see why they have a stake in their own body literacy for their longevity and their quality of life. Body literacy should be taught from earlier stages in life where it can be better utilized to maximize autonomy and informed choice. Body literacy is also language making, so it requires the use of new language to build awareness. And this is why many new terms have been proposed in recent years that can better capture the diversity of menstruating people, you know, that not everyone who menstruates is going to identify themselves as female or even with femininity. And this is an important step to decoupling fertility awareness and body literacy from its sole predecessors of the religious context, like natural family planning. And so culture on earth is also very vast and I do believe that besides the religious context body literacy must also be culturally inclusive and most of the scholarship that's currently being done around it is being produced in the west and so this gives way to a potential western cultural bias um, that can be ignorant and harmful to other cultures and lastly this work must reach beyond people who menstruate it must agitate the whole society to change So in other words, people of all uh, genders must be taught body literacy as well. Creating a space where body literacy education is accessible to people with all types of bodies really helps them learn what their role should be in a menstrual-focused society and uh, what they can do to better serve the people who menstruate in their life. I hope you enjoyed those core tenets of body literacy. I'm going to sort of wrap here by talking about the fight for the future of body literacy education. So the origins of menstrual surveillance likely go back to the mid 19th century where prominent men created instructions on how to essentially detect traces of criminal abortion when women tried to conceal them. And so the goal of this was to prosecute abortionists, uh, the women having abortions and anyone who advertised or dispensed abortion preparations or knowledge and so our current era will not escape this history. With menstrual surveillance, the state can not only track pregnancies, but it can moderate large-scale fertility altogether, as forced sterilization and forced birth are two sides of the same apparatus of state control, and it can broadly criminalize people based on the state's prerogatives. So there have already been several examples where people's last Uh, documented menstruation or their internet search history have been used in court to criminalize people who can become pregnant. The state is clearly interested in menstrual data and understands how important it can be to control fertility even at a population-wide level, and I think this is because they do understand that basically watching menstruation is a reliable tool for understanding fertility. And so this presents a huge problem when abortion rights are under attack globally, And fetal personhood is being codified into law in order to directly oppress people who can become pregnant. And then another thing that we have to contend with is, at the same time, a rapidly growing femtech problem of biodata harvesting. So there's been a very concerted and well-funded effort in recent years to expose consumers to wearable bio-trackers in everything from fitness tracking to fertility tracking. And this wouldn't inherently be terrible if we actually had a body literacy foundation, but the problem is that we don't know or understand our own bodies and are quick to become reliant on a variety of possibly dubious technologies to do so. So both corporations and the state have their own interests as to why they want access to this data, and these privacy concerns are a top priority to us. This comes at a time where, ironically, gynecologists and the medical system have tried convincing the public that there is no need for or no value in having a menstrual cycle until pregnancy. So the caveat being that we're now learning that just about everybody else wants access to that data. So corporations are gathering menstrual data for a few reasons. And one of them is to sell advertising or to use our data for their own research to create new products to sell us. So I cover this in episode 27, menstrual apps and data privacy, which you can listen to. And corporations may also have more nefarious goals and some of that may tie in with the state's prerogatives. So there may be collusion between corporations and the state to create ovulation detecting technologies which can be used to surveil and criminalize. And they can also be used to psychologically manipulate us more efficiently by better understanding our infradian rhythm. And lastly, corporations may also be harvesting menstrual data to eventually integrate it into artificial intelligence that can better mimic our endocrine system's pulses and can contribute to eliminating women in the workforce, in public life, and even in reproduction itself. And these things aren't as far off as you'd think. So there are now several wearable devices on the market and hundreds of menstrual apps that have very dangerous privacy policies. Menstrual apps should be chosen very carefully for their privacy features such as read your body or drip, which uses encryption and data downloaded directly to you to protect it. So the fight over menstrual data that is learning our data for ourselves instead of just handing it over to potentially nefarious actors is extremely important to familiarize yourself with if you're interested in body literacy. Religious extremism and Christian fundamentalism remain huge issues to contend with in fertility awareness and body literacy education. Much of the fertility awareness method research was originally conducted by Catholics, and that was to develop their field of natural family planning. And these groups were able to keep most of this fertility information to themselves, but in the years since Taking Charge of Your Fertility was published, there's been a lot of growing interest in the secularization of FAM and the removal of the religious and moral context. So in an effort to control the flow of information, some Christian and other religious groups have come after secular and rogue body literacy educators, like myself, threatening us with copyright and trademark infringement. And recently, uh, FAM educators were contacted through a popular educator database and reprimanded for advocating for condom usage instead of abstinence to their clients. So there's also been a trend for those who follow NFP practice to also rebrand themselves as using fertility awareness method, perhaps to usurp and co-opt some of the secular movement and also the fam hashtags and other digital spaces. So their aim is to use their resources and money to silence educators who want to share this information from a secular perspective and who want to share this info for the purposes of full autonomy and liberation. So they're especially aiming to target those who use fertility awareness to support and facilitate abortion. And the political divide between these two groups is very stark, with the right fully in support of NFP methods where God and husband are considered to be making the family decisions around reproduction, and the left creating a secular fam with body literacy and reproductive justice as the foundations. So, the more mainstream left has also been timid to support body literacy education as it tends to associate all fertility awareness with the right wing without realizing how needed the left's voices in actualizing the autonomous power of body literacy and fighting for healthcare for all. Additionally, misinformation is also spreading rapidly as the menstrual health and awareness movement really gains traction. So, I hear pretty often that this blew up, meaning, you know, fam and body literacy are now topics of conversation. And this is true. It's evidenced by just generally less menstrual concealment in the public sphere. So I notice people all the time talking about their follicular or luteal phases and make mention of how they're ovulating or how they feel when they're menstruating. And so this is overall, to me, a very positive trend towards body literacy However, the message has gotten overrun with various kinds of misinformation that is not rooted in the evidence base that we've been building. So misinformation is also incentivized with the hold that biotechnology has on developing social media and developing it specifically for creating controversy and an abundance of really like meaningless content. And so this has allowed for a lot of misinformation to thrive at a systemic level, where people are essentially paid, quote unquote, in various ways to be egregious and ridiculous and over the top and very extreme in order to get seen and increase their following. And so because the topic of menstruation is already taboo, it's sort of ripe for agitating this kind of controversy. And so the result is an avalanche of photos, videos, and other media that's all being made all the time, which may not represent authentic body literacy movement. Uh, education, but is intended to use shock and even disgust to increase engagement. And lastly, there is the way that representation is being used in place of actual change to the system. So instead of interrogating the hard truths about obstetrics and gynecology, the public is being told that the induction of more Black, Latina, and Indigenous doctors and surgeons will just fix the problems that are inherent in the racist system of gynecology and obstetrics. And so this takes the heat off of these organizations, you know, the same ones that have upheld and reinforced and deployed medical harm while indoctrinating non-white medical students into that same system. So representation is important on a number of levels, of course, but it won't be able to adequately deal with the problems that are inherent in this field and that are being, it's kind of being used as a distraction. While the maternal mortality crisis and also just the general menstrual health crisis continue on very much unchecked and left to fester while pharmaceuticals and medical device companies provide the only available treatments. So body literacy is an asset for people who are highly motivated to learn about their menstrual cycle and their fertility cycle. And the reasons for this motivation are widespread. It could be due to inadequate health care regarding a reproductive health issue, or it could be because they want to become pregnant, or other people are might be curious because they've been left with. No framework of education or not even a vocabulary to describe themselves and their lived experiences. And so in order for these highly motivated people to learn about their menstrual cycles, those of us who have closed this knowledge gap, who have mastered autonomous fertility control, it is our job essentially to teach them. Every day, the community is growing a little bit larger as new people enter the work. And with a commitment to expanding the research and sharing the knowledge, uh, I think There's a lot that that can be done for it to grow. And so the community is not necessarily cohesive. It includes educators, artists, social media creators, independent individuals, femtech entrepreneurs, like a variety of organizations and collectives. But even if it isn't coherent yet or it hasn't come together, body literacy is already changing the world. The body literacy skills that you attain empower you to navigate your health as you grow and to use your cycles as a marker of time. This personalized knowledge helps gives you the power to make informed decisions about your sexual and reproductive health, and it helps connect your menstrual cycle to all other body systems and acknowledges the interrelationships between the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual that combine to create the whole you. Body literacy teaches us to understand that the menstrual cycle is a vital sign, which connects to all the other major body systems in concert to protect your health and longevity. In the transition to body literacy, we'll encourage you to examine the intergenerational connectedness of your body. We can learn a great deal from our heritage, our food customs, as well as knowledge of medicinal plants and mushrooms and other holistic techniques for wellness. And these techniques don't work against clinical medicine, but they can be an asset to better diagnosing and treating people. And so each person should draw upon their elders and peers in your community, as well as their current environment for healing inspiration because body literacy has enormous capabilities. The skill of understanding what your body is telling you through observation, charting, and analyzation is very useful and facilitates informed consent and better, more personalized healthcare and decision-making. So understanding this means that the health challenges of people who are facing them in a myriad of ways are not in a vacuum. So we must recognize that there are very powerful social forces which control our lives and impact our health. And so I hope this episode was able to help you conceptualize body literacy and enter into the subject from your unique vantage point. So we learned about what body literacy is, about its history, the values that shape body literacy education, and some of the core principles, beliefs, and doctrines that inspired me to teach and share about this subject. So I hope that this movement continues to grow and that it finds a way through some of the major challenges ahead. There really has never been a more important moment to embrace this information, but I see where fear, panic, and short-term thinking have prevented us from getting it to reach its full, widespread potential. And so I hope that as things become more widespread, that the message will remain clear and available to all who wish to use the system for their own ends, for their own fates and futures. Body literacy has reached higher and further than I would have ever imagined when I first created the Fam Taught Me hashtag about eight years ago. And so I'm every bit encouraged to keep going, you know, despite the fact that there are numerous problems that really need to be addressed. And so I hope that you'll join me in learning body literacy in the ways that feel right for you. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with someone you can find my show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. If you can take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review me, I would really appreciate that, as doing so helps more people find the show. And this episode is brought to you by my Fertility Awareness Education Initiative. It's called Hashtag Fam Taught Me. You can book a session with me by heading over to learnbodyliteracy.com or follow me on Instagram at learnbodylit to learn more. And don't forget to check out my recent course, Breaking Up with Birth Control, and my recent books, The Body Literacy, Visual Reader, and Coloring Book. And this concludes episode 56 of the Someone Summer podcast. Good night.